click, pay, and download instantly. Welcome to the podcast. Today's sponsor is Novo. You want the secret to never-ending cash flow in your business banking account? So do we. But in the meantime, you can stop the drain on your account with useless bank fees by switching to Novo Free Business Banking. Novo is the number one business banking app because it's built from the ground up to be powerfully simple and free business banking that Money Magazine actually called the best business checking account of 2021. With Novo, there are no minimum balances, no transaction limits, no hidden fees. You can sign up for free in under 10 minutes at banknovo.com slash SPI in just 10 minutes. And then they're gonna mail you a Novo debit card and you can get free ATM use with that too. So they make banking easy and secure. You can manage your account in their customizable web or Android iOS app with built-in profit first accounting and invoicing. Plus you can tag each transaction and upload receipts. I'm actually really impressed because some of these apps and things like this about banking, sometimes they're not so simple. This is simple to use, really easy to sign up. Plus they offer over $5,000 in perks and discounts just for signing up. Get your free business banking account in just 10 minutes at banknovo.com slash SPI. That's go to banknovo.com slash SPI to sign up for free right now and get a free copy of Novo's Small Business Starter Guide, banknovo.com slash SPI. Today's sponsor is Honey. We all shop online pretty much all the time. I know I do. And we've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout, right? But thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is a free browser extension that scours the internet for promo cards and applies the best one it finds right into your cart. They support over 30,000 stores online, sites that have tech and gaming products to fashion brands, even food delivery. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites when you go to check out, the Honey button drops down and all you have to do is click apply coupons. It's so easy, you just wait a few seconds, it applies it and the price drops right before your eyes. I have actually used Honey before, and it is amazing. Even my son uses it when he's looking for things and games and all this kind of stuff that he wants to buy. It saves you money immediately. Like, it's it's insane. I've seen other people use it. I didn't believe it was this easy until I tried it myself, and it's, like, free to use. It's just ridiculous. I can't recommend it enough. And they have helped 17 million members save over $2 billion dollars. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on these free savings. It's literally free and installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash SPI. That's joinhoney.com slash SPI. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he's become known as a podcasting legend, but he still thinks we're just in the beginning of it, Pat Flynn. This week, we spoke with Anthony Sarandria, who you can connect with on Instagram, and he gave us a lot of gold nuggets about generating leads online. But I know what some of you may be thinking. I'm not even close to that level yet where I can do some of those things that we talked about. And still, I would recommend you listen to that episode if you haven't already because we talked about a lot of things that aren't often discussed and an amazing approach to building leads for your business. However, if you're just starting out, I wanted to point out one thing that Anthony mentioned that we talked about in the beginning, but is something that is so important when you're building your business, especially for the first time, 
because it makes everything else so much easier after that. And we'll talk about lead gen and how to do that even if you're just starting out. But before you generate leads, we need to know exactly what our target audience is going through. And I think, you know, I've said this enough. Hopefully, if you've listened to the show before, I've beaten that so much into you because everything else comes easier when you know who your audience is. But it's one thing to say that, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do research. I'm going to have conversations with people. I'm going to see what the forums are saying and put myself in their shoes and try to figure out what I can do to best serve them. Ask them questions like, what are you challenged with right now? What's your biggest and number one struggle that you're dealing with? That can definitely help you, and that's a great thing to do. But more than that, becoming your target audience. That's what Anthony did when he was looking at providing services to people who were in debt. What did he do? He went and defaulted on his credit card himself just to understand what people were going through. And on one hand, that's kind of ridiculous. First of all, it puts your own credit at risk and all this other stuff. But number two, how beautiful is it to then completely realize what a person's going through because you're going through it yourself. It's almost like I've seen these things on YouTube where YouTubers will, and there's obviously a, a graceful and a good way to do this, and there's a way to do it where you're just trying to get views and stuff. A lot of people have done this, but they live homeless for a week and just really put themselves in a homeless person's you know, scenario, for example. And the YouTubers, I can't even remember the name of the YouTuber who did it. I mean, there was a number. Some weren't doing it very well. Others really portrayed through cinematography and through storytelling exactly what a homeless person was going through. And you can't help but if you are in that yourself and you're putting yourself in that situation, really begin to empathize. And that's really the key here, and that's empathy. That's what this episode is all about, having empathy for those who you are about to serve and those who you are serving. Because you need to, again, not just put yourself in the shoes of your target audience, but if possible, get fully immersed into it as much as possible. Now, you've heard me talk about my Pokemon channel here before. It's called Deep Pocket Monster. I think at this point, we're very close to, if not already, past 100,000 subscribers on the channel. And we just started it earlier this year. I know for a fact a big reason why I was able to succeed so quickly in this space, which is very saturated, is because I became a member of the community myself. And I immersed myself in the community of Pokemon collectibles so much that it just became literally a part of my everyday life. Not just because it allowed me to hang out with the kids more and play with them, but it also allowed me to do research. Not research like I'm keeping track in a notebook of all the things and you know which videos are performing well, which videos are not performing well. I didn't start doing that until after I started you know, filming and creating videos for this community. But more so just what are people like here? What, what, why are they continually watching these live streams? And why are they donating money to that streamer? And why are they spending so much money on this? And what is it about it? Right, I found out, for example, that a lot of the people in the Pokemon collectible space who are on YouTube in particular were 24 to 35-year-old males who had once grown up with Pokemon but didn't have enough money to really go out and buy things. And as soon as they started getting jobs and collectible market, especially, of course, with the pandemic hitting at the same time, it was like all things kind of built up to the fact that you know these people now who had jobs and have money or stimuluses or, or whatever – are now spending money on things that bring them back to childhood when things weren't so crazy, when things were great and Pokemon was an escape for a lot of people. And it's not just Pokemon, you know, a lot of other collectibles from Magic the Gathering to sports card collectibles and coins and other things like that. Oh, everything rose, right? Everything rose. If you were a stockholder of 
I can't remember the name of the stock. It's a collectibles type stock. They actually got acquired, but it rose like crazy. It rose like crazy. I remember following that. But again, immersing yourself in that situation because you're investing time and perhaps even money into it. Speaking of investing, we'll just continue on this path. I knew that I wanted to invest in a company that would hopefully help grow my income by 10x, right? Or grow my cash by 10x. And I was looking and discovering a lot of different companies. You know, there was Apple at the time when I started getting interested in stocks and Google or Alphabet, of course, and Amazon. And I didn't really get in early on those. But I remember specifically people talking about in 2014, 2015, Tesla. And Tesla at the time, a lot of people didn't believe they were gonna do very well. They'd just come out with the Model S and the Model X was just about to come out. And a lot of people were very, very bullish on Tesla. A lot of people were also shorting Tesla, meaning they were betting that it was going to fail. Now, instead of just either believing one group or another and falling for propaganda on both sides, I decided to immerse myself in the Tesla community. So I test drove a couple Teslas. I asked a friend if I could drive his, and then I ended up loving it so much that I bought my own. Not only did I buy my own, I ended up being very active in different forums. I started to reach out and talk to other community members in the Tesla owner space. I started following YouTubers who were specifically talking about Tesla and what the company was doing just so I could stay involved. And I got so immersed in it that I remember when Elon Musk would give his keynotes and reveal certain things, everything from the semi-truck to the Tesla Model Y to even the Cybertruck, which was just a failed presentation, which actually turned out to be the best thing ever because it provided so much free marketing for them. This was when the windshield broke, when Elon threw a steel ball into the windshield of a Cybertruck. I was just glued. I couldn't stop thinking, I couldn't stop reading, I couldn't stop watching about Tesla. And I fully immersed myself in it so much that I became confident that I could dedicate a number of dollars into a portfolio that was made up of 98% Tesla. And I'm very happy with how it's performed. It's actually just been amazing, in fact. And even though it's gone down a little bit, it's still way up. I mean, I remember when they split the stock by five, then it just continued to go up and, and I'm still very bullish on it. This is not stock advice, by the way. This is just my own experience. And all this to say, I didn't just put money into something without doing a bunch of research, but that research wasn't even just reading or watching or listening. It was actually being, right? It was actually being. I want you to think about your target audience, the target market that you're in. How much have you really immersed yourself into that community? Now, in some cases, you might be doing this business because you were once somebody who was in that community yourself, who had gone through the same struggles, and you've already passed those struggles, and now you're sharing that knowledge that you've gained with others who are once where you were before. But even then, I remember with my architecture website, which I still have, greenexamacademy.com, you know, I was somebody who took a very difficult architectural exam happened to have gotten laid off a few months later and that inspired me to create a website to help people pass this architectural exam. It's called the lead exam and it did very well. And I was in the shoes of my audience because I had just taken the exam like earlier that year. So I knew exactly what a person was going through. I knew exactly what a person was thinking because I was just there too. And that actually helped me because even a year later when the United States Green Building Council, this is the company that actually creates and writes the exam questions for this really difficult exam, when they came out with their own study guide, people still connected with me more because they saw that I was exactly right where they were, that I understood even more than the company itself, 
how difficult the test was, what it was like to go and get up on exam day, how to study, what not to study, and how to go through 600 pages of stuff and memorize it all. So that worked in my favor. But over the years, as I started to dedicate more time to smart passive income, as I started to dedicate more time to other projects, everything from the security guard training website from 2010 to the 2014 food trucker website, both of those, by the way, having been sold in early 2020, which is something I'm very proud of, to building a membership community at SPI Pro, writing books, speaking around the world, all these kinds of things. I had then far removed from the lead exam space, that architecture space. And as a result of that, yeah, even though it is passive income, even though the website still ranks for certain keywords, even though people can still purchase products and affiliate products through my links, I still get paid, but I'm not in that community anymore. And as a result, my income has gone down. And as a result, other competitors have come through who are more involved, who are still in the architecture world, of course, and I'm Obviously not, I had gotten let go and I've moved on and focused on other things. And of course, I talk about passive income and the automation of, of income, residual income and such, but nothing is forever. And I think the idea being you build something so that it can run on its own for a while, either that or you hire or find people and or tools to help run it for a while. But even then, if you are removing yourself from who it is that you're serving, because you've already accomplished those things or because you have conquered those struggles and challenges. People change, challenges change, struggles change. You gotta continually immerse yourself into your market and community, which is why one of my favorite things that I see some entrepreneurs do is they hold events. And sometimes they're online, sometimes they're offline. But with events, you get people who are really, really deep into that space to show up. And when people show up there, they talk. They talk to each other, they talk to teams, they talk to staff, and that's where you can find out so much information because you've literally created a space to immerse yourself with your own community. Something that I talk about a lot in Superfans, my book, which helps you build fans because you're bringing that community together. They're finding people just like themselves in there too. But more than that, that's an amazing place to do research, but also just be and put yourself in that situation. And I'm really glad Anthony in episode 505 talked about that, the fact that he defaulted on his credit card just so he would know what it was like to have a collector come, to feel what it was like to just continually get calls because of a payment that you missed. Very scary. And that way you can get into the heads of those who are going through the same thing too. This is why I love to continually try new things here at SPI. Because when I try new things, I can become a beginner again and I can remember what it was like and I can start over with all of you at the same time. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's why I started the Switch Pod with Caleb because we were both complete noobs when it came to e-commerce and physical products and inventing and patenting and all that stuff. And that company, I don't know if you heard, but is in Best Buys now. You can check it out, Best Buy Online, in fact, in the US. And I believe in Canada as well with other projects fully immersing myself like the Deep Pocket Monster Pokemon channel to bring this back around. Again, all this to say, I wanna challenge you. How can you better and more deeply fully immerse yourself and become one of your target audience members yourself? Either that, or if that seems to be challenging, find a target audience member, somebody in your audience right now and connect with them. Take them out to dinner or coffee. Get on a Skype call or a Zoom call with them and see what you can do to just continue that relationship. And they're gonna feel loved. They're gonna feel like you're paying a lot of attention to them. Provide them value, don't just take, take, take. But at the same time, they're gonna give you so much more in return. 
and everybody wins. Not just both of you, but the audience who is there like you as well and like them. So that's my challenge to you. How will you fully immerse yourself into your community and become one with who it is that you're serving? Again, everything becomes so much easier. The copy that you create, the content that you write and publish, who becomes a guest on your podcast, to the products that you create, to the emails that you send out, and the customer service and how it feels to have a person complain about something that you provide them. Everything works better when you immerse yourself. Thank you so much for listening to the follow-up Friday episode here on Smart Passive Income. Let me know what you think. Maybe this is something that you needed to hear right now. And if so, hook me up on at Pat Flynn on Instagram and at Pat Flynn on Twitter. And again, make sure to follow Anthony Sarandria, S-A-R-A-N-D-R-E-A on Instagram. That's how he wants to connect with you. And I look forward to serving you next week in our next interview. Cheers, take care. I appreciate you. And oh man, I just looked at the guest for next week. Whew, you are not gonna wanna miss this. Somebody who is a legend in the online business space who's revamping something that has been a tried and true method and bringing us up to date with it. What is it? Well, you'll have to wait to find out. Episode 507 coming your way. Appreciate you. Take care. Thanks so much. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. A while ago, I let you know that it was coming, but now I'm thrilled to let you know that it's finally here. Our newest podcast, The Community Experience, is now out and available wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, The Community Experience. It was designed to explore all things community and go deeper with you in terms of what it means to create and to participate in a community, any community. Not only that, but we wanna help you design communities that thrive, whether it's a niche community or it's based on fandom or tied to a personal brand or your business. So if you've ever found yourself asking questions like, well, how do we make a community flourish? How do we keep it vibrant and supportive, right? Can we actually create authentic connections and communities? Well, if you've ever asked yourself those things, you're gonna love the Community Experience Podcast. And each week, team members within SPI host the show. Jillian Benbow and Tony Bacigalupo, and they help you learn practical strategies and insights from people on the cutting edge of community building, as well as they give you a peek behind the scenes in terms of what's going on within our own community, SPI Pro. And we, everybody, myself included especially, believe that community-driven content and commerce is changing the landscape of work and life, and that we hope you'll join us for the ride and embrace the experience. So the community experience is now available and you won't wanna miss it. Episodes drop every Tuesday, so make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Go ahead and subscribe now. The community experience, it's gonna be awesome. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. WNYC Studios is supported by GEICO. 
Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. Fortunately, GEICO makes it easy to bundle your home and car insurance. It's a good thing, too, because having a home is hard work. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. GEICO.com. Easy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you. That obviously was President Biden yesterday anticipating some of the pushback from Republican lawmakers and maybe other libertarians as he put forth his most sweeping and aggressive plan to get more Americans vaccinated. Here's some of what's in it, if you haven't heard the details. According to executive orders, companies with 100 or more employees must mandate vaccines or commit to weekly testing. All federal workers must be vaccinated. Most healthcare workers in hospitals, ambulatory settings, and home health aides will now have to get vaccinated or lose their jobs. The president said he'll require all employers to offer paid time off for vaccination, and he called on all states to adopt vaccine requirements for all school workers. He said he'll make at-home test kits more affordable, expand testing availability overall, and double fines for not wearing a mask while traveling. That is just some of what the president announced yesterday. So with me now to dig into more of this are New York Times reporters Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent covering health policy, and Apoorva Mandevilli, who covers science and global health. Apoorva, Cheryl, welcome back to WNYC. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So, Apoorva, up till this point, Biden had been fairly conservative on vaccine mandates, not generally willing to exercise that power. What changed? I think what changed is that we really have not seen as much of an uptick in vaccinations as we needed to. And then in the meantime, the numbers of cases and hospitalizations and deaths have just kept going up. It's just become very, very clear that the current rate of vaccinations is just not going to be enough to keep this virus at bay. And Cheryl, the president didn't miss words directing his ire at the 80 million or so eligible unvaccinated, saying, quote, our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost all of us. I think he was channeling a lot of what a lot of vaccinated Americans feel. I'm sure you hear it as you move around, you know, what some vaccinated people are saying about the unvaccinated these days. I'm curious um, how much of an impact you think these new measures or his new attitude might have. Well, I think it's unclear. You know, the vaccine and COVID generally has been very polarizing in our country. And there's some reason to think that President Biden telling his opponents what to do will only make them dig in further. Uh, that's actually why he went to a mandate. He tried everything else. He tried cajoling. He tried pleading. He tried speaking nicely. He tried incentives. States offered a million dollar, you know, lottery if you if you would just get vaccinated. And I think he realized that he was at the end of his bag of tricks. And so he had to be kind of the bad parent and say, you know what, I asked you to do this. You wouldn't do it. Now I'm going to make you do it. 
Um, but we will see resistance. We're already seeing Republican governors saying it's unconstitutional. We're going to sue. We're seeing unions say we would like this to be a subject of collective bargaining. It's a matter of employee rights. So um, I think that it will not be as easy as simply saying you must get vaccinated. There will be hurdles ahead. And Cheryl, let me stay with you for a follow-up question since you're the, the policy reporter. Apoorva is more the, the science reporter. Um, under the plan, private sector businesses that have 100 or more employees will have to require vaccination or mandatory weekly testing. That's an order from the president on private companies. Does the president have the power to impose such a rule on private businesses? Well, legal experts say that President Biden is on very solid ground. Companies are required to abide by federal health and safety standards. Uh, We all know about OSHA, the Workplace Safety Organization, um, and OSHA will enforce this rule as it enforces other rules to guarantee the safety of workers. So uh, he is, according to numerous experts that I've talked to, on solid ground. That doesn't mean there won't be lawsuits. And or what? In other words, what happens to companies that refuse to comply, assuming this policy is upheld? I think what happens is what happens in any situation where there's an OSHA violation. So, you know, let's say you're, I don't know, forcing employees to work in uh, in a factory and it's the heat is 100 degrees or whatever. It's, um, you know, OSHA comes in, they, they issue a citation And then I believe it goes through either some kind of administrative proceeding to get the company into compliance. And if that doesn't work, I think they can go to the courts, although I am not a labor lawyer, so don't hold me to that. (laughs) And Apoorva, for you as a health and science reporter, um, maybe it's worth reminding people of what's at stake. I mean, we're back up to 1,500 COVID-related deaths per day in the United States or thereabouts, and almost every single one is coming in an unvaccinated person. That's right. And those numbers have actually been continuing to go up. And despite all of the attention on breakthrough infections, it is actually extremely clear that the vast, vast majority of hospitalizations and deaths are happening in unvaccinated people. And any of the breakthrough infections that you're hearing about are mostly happening in older people and immunocompromised people. So it is absolutely crucial to get to these younger, unvaccinated people who are circulating the virus and the older people who are really at high risk. We have to do that, not just in the short term to cut down these numbers, but even in the long term, because this virus is not going anywhere. It is here to stay. And you've done reporting on people who won't get the vaccine, Um, And I I think for a lot of people who have already gotten the shots, the refusal of health care workers sounds especially perplexing. The fact that that seems to be, um, you know, a population that's refusing vaccines about at the rate of anybody else, despite uh, how exposed they get to people who presumably might have COVID. Do you have insight into that? And and could these new rules uh, start a wave of either mass vaccination or mass retirement in the healthcare sector? 
I think the mass retirement is a real possibility. There, there are some you know, surveys showing that uh, uh, as many as a third of healthcare workers are contemplating retiring from the profession. Some of them are close to retirement age anyway, and others may get pushed out by this. But really, there is no alternative because when you have somebody with COVID coming into the hospital and the vast majority of these people have vulnerabilities, they're coming in because they are already frail in some other way, it is absolutely imperative for the hospitals to protect them. And this is why we have all of these rules. Um, this is why we ask hospitals to make sure that patients are protected and safe. And so this this vaccine mandate is not really all that different than you know asking doctors to wear gloves or you know taking sterile precautions. It's really along those lines if you think about it. Ultimately, the hospitals are responsible for keeping their patients safe. They're anticipating a lot of retirements uh, in New York City among teachers with the vaccine requirement that Mayor de Blasio is imposing. We're going to ask him about that in our upcoming segment. Is there going to be a teacher shortage in New York City this school year as as a result of his vaccine mandate? Uh, we can take a few phone calls for Cheryl Gay Stolberg and Apoorva Mandeville from the New York Times on President Biden's new COVID rules, 646 Four three five seventy two eighty six four six four three five seventy two eighty and Lawrence in Manhattan. You're on WNYC. Hi, Lawrence. Yes. Hi. Is it true that the postal workers are not going to be mandated to be vaccinated? And and if that's so, how come? Do you know, Cheryl? So I actually inquired about this uh, last night. Lucky for me, I have a friend who represents the Rural Carriers Union. He's a lawyer, and he wrote me last night saying that uh, he believes the postal workers are exempt. But then he wrote me again this morning saying he is not so sure, in his words, quote, a lot of rumors out there. So, um, uh, so I'm sorry, that's a very unsatisfying answer. Um, but I, I don't know, and this is, in fact, one of the things that I was going to be looking into today to try to sort this out. But wait, aren't postal workers federal employees? So it would be well, a simple yes that they would be covered under the president's order? Apparently not. So here's the, here's the thing about that. The president's order covers executive branch employees. So that's all federal agencies. It's not uh, employees of Congress uh, or the uh, courts. Uh-huh. The Postal Service is an independent agency of the executive branch. And that independent agency status is what I think is creating some murkiness about whether or not they're covered. Edward in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Edward. Yeah, hi. Uh, it's interesting on 9-11, you know, people were stereotyped, Muslims were stereotyped and scapegoated because people were afraid of them, right? They saw them as terrorists because we saw Muslims striking on 9-11. And we were told, you know, all these things that Bloomberg did, all these things that Bush did were wrong, right? But now anti-vaxxers or people who are just against an mRNA vaccine, not all vaccines, for example, are stereotyped as well, you see? And so how, how is that any different? How is it different mandating certain people who might have many various reasons for not taking the vaccine? Okay. And furthermore, there was a study by AP just a a few weeks ago that said vaccinated people can carry as much virus as others. So you can still transmit the disease. The the virus does not care if you're vaccinated. Maybe your symptoms will be less, but the transmission is is just as great and the viral load is just as great. And Edward, I'm going to put that question to Apoorva in a minute. That's a legitimate science question. But on the stereotyping, um, it's not stereotyping to 
impose health requirements that protect members of the community. The and, same thing was said about the Jews. The Jews supposedly carry typhoid. Oh black boy. people, you weren't supposed to drink it. You weren't supposed to drink from fountains in the South because because blacks carry disease. Yes, except that um, we know that there's a real outbreak and that the lack of vaccination among a quarter or so of the population is a reason that we are not ending this outbreak or this pandemic in this country. So it's such a specious argument and it's offensive, frankly, uh, to Jews and blacks and other people who you bring up. But Apoorva, let me ask you his science question, um, because there is a real question there in that part of his call. Uh, we know that even vaccinated people are transmitting the virus uh, at rates that we hoped would not be the case when the vaccines first came in. So how does vaccination stop transmission of the virus? So this idea that vaccinated people may be just as likely to transmit was the case several weeks ago. but uh, And that was based really on an observation that very early in infection, vaccinated people can carry just as much virus in their nose and throat as unvaccinated people do. But since then, there have been several studies and scientists have been able to show that even though at that very early stage, people may have just the same amount of virus, regardless of vaccination status, in somebody who is vaccinated, the immune system kicks in very quickly and gets rid of that virus. So if an unvaccinated person is infectious for, let's say, 10 days, the vaccinated person is infectious for just two or three days. So you're talking about a much narrower window, and you're also talking about the immune system getting rid of the vast majority of the virus very quickly. So this this idea of them being the same is only true for a very short period of time. Overall, a vaccinated person will have much, much fewer chance of infecting somebody else than someone who's unvaccinated. Interesting. Cheryl, how much resonance do you think a caller like we just got has in uh, Republican America or, let's say, on the Republican side of the aisle in Congress? Well, I think, sadly, the caller does have some residents on the foreign side, on the far right side of the um, of the Republican Party. But you are seeing increasingly Republican leaders, including Mitch McConnell, urge people to get vaccinated. Uh, many Republicans have seen the Delta variant, you know, rip through their communities and kill their constituents and overwhelm their hospitals and their districts. And and they are concerned. So while, while we do see those kinds of extreme arguments, I would say on the fringe, I don't think those kinds of arguments will fly with mainstream Republicans, particularly what the caller said about Jews and blacks, and I thank you for calling him out on that. Apoorva, another science question before we run out of time. Relating to the president's announcements yesterday, uh, there was a lot about vaccination, but there was a lot about testing, and there's a very open door, door in most of what he announced to testing as an alternative to vaccination. Um, and some people say we've had several guests recently, Dr. Michael Minna from Harvard, Ed Young from The Atlantic, who say the country's been putting too many of its eggs in one basket, the vaccination basket. Uh, and testing is very effective, especially if it's a, a 
rapid test just before you enter a public place, for example, according to Dr. Minna, if it's used on a widespread enough basis and with enough frequency. Uh, the testing is really a key to stopping the pandemic. I'm curious your quick take in our last 30 seconds or so as a, as a science reporter on that and where it fits in uh, to the potential effectiveness of the president's orders. Testing and masking are both going to be much more important in the shorter term because vaccines take weeks for, uh, to, for us to see an effect. And so we really do need to have more of those things in place if we want to see a quicker impact. And the president did make some strides toward that, but the weekly negative test alternative to vaccination is not really going to work because we know that Delta acts quickly. And so we're going to need much more rapid testing and much more of it available for us to have any kind of impact. And we leave it there for now with New York Times reporter Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Washington correspondent covering health policy and science and global health reporter Apoorva Mandavilli. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Brian. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. For me, was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So, do you remember Sully, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson River? He had done everything there is to do in an airplane. He was even a trainer of other pilots yet he had never had the opportunity to land an airplane on the Hudson River. He had one shot at greasing that landing and he nailed it. And when it comes to selling your business, you've got one shot. One shot to make sure you punch above your weight when you go to sell your company. One shot to make sure you don't make some of the most common mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they sell their business. That's why I wrote the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for anyone looking to sell their company. You can get it along with some gifts for my listeners at builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio, where we help you punch above your weight class when it comes to selling your business. My name is John Warlow, and today I've got a special guest. His name is Paul Farrell, who has built a bunch of companies. So I looked at his LinkedIn profile, and it starts with the role of Senior Vice President AOL back in the late 1990s. He went on to build five or six different companies, the latest of which is a business called Nehemiah, which was a cybersecurity business, which I'll let him explain to you what they did. What I want you to listen for is... The valuation metrics these businesses tend to attract because they have low churn rates. And therefore, that gave Paul the confidence to continue to bleed cash, frankly, because he knew there was a good exit on the horizon. Listen for some of the math around that. Also, the surprising role industry conferences can play in 
the exit of your company, where you might find potential acquirers, et cetera. Lots to learn from Paul J. Farrell. Here's Paul. Paul Farrell, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you for having me today. Nehemiah Security does what exactly? What I mean, in layman's terms, because I'm not a techie, explain what this company does. Well, that's a perfect setup for what we do, John, that you're not a techie. And what we figured out is that a bunch of boards across the world didn't understand the cyber speak that where they were getting with their cyber reports. And so we decided to approach it more in like an MBA type style of this is your total amount of risks of, you know, $281 million of risk has a 61% chance of happening. These are the critical areas. And if you'd like to do something about it there, here's your capital asset pricing model. Capital asset pricing model is a financial term that just says, I got 10 really good projects to do, but I can only do three or four of them. So which one would you pick? And we actually gave our customers the return. So how much it would reduce risk. So you can invest a million and reduce this by 10, 10%, or you're going to invest a million in this other project and reduce risk only 1%. So if, if I'm Procter and Gamble and I've got a bunch of, a bunch of computers that lace together my supply chain, you would tell me that, Hey, you've, you've got some cyber risks. People could, could hack your back end. And if that were to happen, this would be the financial impact. And and you would make that pitch to Procter and Gamble and the IT guys at Procter and Gamble. And they would say, okay, yeah, it's help us monetize it. Yeah. And and basically you, you know, they have, thousands of important things, but you start with the top 30 business applications. So one thing, John, that that I would point out to you and your viewers is it's not about the PC. You can go buy a new PC for what, a couple thousand dollars now. I mean, they're really cheap. It's the information on the PC and it's the systems that the, the critical business systems that the PCs are connected to. And so you could care maybe from a business term, you should care very little about uh, my employee timekeeping system because I can fix that really really fast, or I can replace it really fast, or we could just assume everybody worked 40 hours and just pay everybody. But if they, if I'm on Amazon and they break my inventory system and people are earning stuff that's not there and all that, then I have a much more different problem. So in that particular scenario, I would select the inventory system. And so in the big boards, these people and these big companies and small companies uh, across the, you know, where we were working about the world, they know what their top 30 business applications are. And even a small business does. I mean, by the way, you don't immediately start selling enterprises. You start selling a different category. And uh, we got our start in small credit bureaus, you know, who had sophistication and the need, but they didn't have a lot of people to do all these things. And so we helped them out. And that was a launching step for us to sell bigger companies. What is a small credit bureau? Like, what is that? I don't know what you mean by that. Uh, a credit bureau would be, oh God, which one uh, would be like a regional, they're like small regional banks, but they're not really banks. It's where people take money and they save it and they borrow from it. Um, maybe, uh, uh, and um, they could be the farmer's cooperative. Okay. And these, and these folks have, have customer information, they have financial information and you would go in and go, Hey guys, like, you know, you've got some exposure here. If people hack you, this is the financial downside of that. And and you would, you sold them a software to help them monitor and measure that over time. Yeah. By the way, they had all the financial regulations, the banks and everybody else have, 
but they don't have all the people, all the money and the size to do it. And by the way, you're not going to start a software firm and sell the biggest company out of the box unless you know somebody and you're very blessed. You're going to have to find a niche and build on it. And then, and then we kept on building up in what they call fintech financial technologies to bigger financial institutions. But then that gave us, once we sold some bigger mainstay accounts at financial institutions, we were able to branch into consumer packaged goods and into healthcare. Um, and what were you selling exactly? Like you mentioned it's a SaaS product, but so this is you're billing them on, on an annual basis or a monthly basis? Uh, uh, well, monthly basis. So they're billing a monthly basis and we sell them the platform where they can sign on and check their, check their risk. Now, as we started into, we sold a couple of years later, um, that frequency increased as the, as the sophistication of the system increased. At first, people might check once a week. And they were checking twice a week. And then they increased over time as the sophistication of our software increased. And because every day your risk changes with the new cyber things that come out, like a new attack comes out against uh, medium-sized companies and the uh, fintech area or the agriculture area or anything like that, then you, we would know about them and you could respond to them. And so over time, the frequency of people checking these reports increased. Um, and we were driving more in a strategy basis. Uh, we were driving more to make them daily applicable through a strategy that helped them decide what they're fixing on a daily, daily basis. This sounds like a really capital intensive business to start. Like I get how it would be profitable and a nice moat around it over time. But in the first to build the algorithm and actually all the systems, I'd imagine that would cost a lot. How did you finance the, the creation of this company? Well, I was very fortunate to have um, a backer that, uh, that we've been successful many times over with. And so once you're successful one or two times, you're playing with company money or the bank. Uh, and we use that uh, money that we had made in previous ones to invest in this. This uh, is an individual or like a private equity group or a VC? Family or? Office, a family, a family office. office. Okay. But you got to understand that they have the same return requirements as, as a VC or anybody else. I mean, they what have the... I've heard family offices. What are their return expectations? Like what, what would they hope to get out of investing in your company? Like on a, in a return basis? Well, I, I think that they, they're not as, 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 they don't have as much pressure as funds that have to close out every five years and all that and want to show a 20 X or something like that. But to me, I always thought that if I could get them a five to 10 X on what they invested, it was pretty good. And so the people I was, I'm not talking about for every family office, some family offices I know now look for impact. Like, is it, is, you know, they'll take less money if it's an impact investing opportunity. I've always worked in pure commercial and have, have achieved the 10 X or greater kind of uh, hurdle. How do you find a family office to invest in your company? Oh, there's lots of them around. There's people that know them. They're all over the place. There's, you know, God bless America and Canada and places like that because we've had the grounds where entrepreneurials are able to flourish and there's many of them. You can go to conferences to learn about them. Um, most of the things that, that I would say to every person out there is schedule two networking lunches every week, two or three. 
and get out there and talk to your uh, a fellow, uh, maybe your accountant, your 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 legal people, other people that you do business with, and just have conversations with them. And you start hearing about things that are happening in your market or even in your region or in the country, and you learn. Uh, I think it's really important that you know we get so focused on being successful that I got to sit here at my desk at my company twelve hours a day. But for me, a key component has always been go see people or just pick up the phone. I, I keep a list every week of two or three people that I haven't talked to in three months or greater that I want to call. And you can text them now. You can call them. Sure. You're, you know, I just came from a meeting, right? I just came from a meeting to come to talk to you, which was 20 minutes away. And up, uh, I texted the guy earlier and he called me about an opportunity that he wants me to look at with him on a new software firm that they think is going to be smashing. And that just happened 15 minutes. We said, great, we'll get together next week. Send this guy this, that, and we're done. But, so so like, I, I got to ask, when you take investment from an outsider, what does that feel like? Because I've seen your LinkedIn. I mean, yeah. it's impressive. You started off at AOL as a senior vice president and had like a string of four or five successes, one after the other, after the other. So like... Like I get, you've got a incredible pedigree of running and building businesses. When you bring, when you take out, I'm assuming that the family office you work with, you're friendly with the the you know the people yeah, who fund I, the family you're office. Talking about a, now now going out a 40 year relationship, right? Yeah, I mean it's a trust. I mean, by the way, trust is so important. You know, trust is so important. Um, like. <laughs> And, and but my return is I treat it like it's my own money. That's what I was getting at. And, and I wondered if, 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 if it almost feels more pressure because now it's not only the money that you stand to risk, but it's also this longstanding relationship. I mean, do, do you feel additional pressure because it's not your money? Of course. Right. I mean, of course you have to, that's being, that's having integrity and taking responsibility. And when you, sh- you know, contracts are contracts, but when you shake a person's hand and you look them in the eye, him or her, and you say, yes, you let your yes be yes. And your no be no. And then you do everything you can to deliver on your promises. So you know? are you, are you ever tempted to just take the pressure off a little bit and just fund it yourself and not get involved in an outside? You know what I mean? Well, you know, a lot of my ideas, I can't fund myself. So, <laughs> I mean, one of the things uh, we could maybe talk about at some other time, John, but we, my wife and I believe in putting back. So 50% of everything we've ever made has gone back into charity. Wow. And uh, we're committed for that. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for it. Not the reasons for the show. We'll talk about other stuff, but maybe we can come back some other time and talk about that. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. So, okay. So you're aligned with this, uh, in this 40 year relationship with this family office. You, you've got some investment capital to build this business. As, I mean, I want to get to the exit because I know it was a five year run and, and you had a, a great exit. I, as you look back over that five-year journey, was there one or two things that you did to take it from a, a, a nascent idea to a valuable company? Like it, we're all about building value. So if it, were there one or two strategic moves you made to make it a valuable business that could be sold effectively? Yeah. And it's never about me. It's always about the hires you make. 
mm-hmm. making those hires are so critical. The people like in the beginning, we're building complex math models, right? To do the, the regressions on all the attacks and all the defenses and all that stuff. And the, the, the people we hired in product management, people we hired in development were so critical because we thought we had a good idea. We built something and then we test it and, and it was good but it wasn't good enough. And we end up rebuilding it again the next month. And it takes a certain psyche of person to do that. And then, you know, and then it's, it's all about the people, the support people, the salespeople. And I would say the most important thing is culture, right? I mean, like getting that culture thing, right. And hiring the right people, you could have the best idea in the world and it fail. You got to have a culture around it for promotes the product. Would it be fair to say that some of the algorithms that you developed were, uh, again, I happen to know your background. You've got you've got lots of experience in IT, so I say this with tremendous respect to your your experience. W- were some of the models that you were building beyond your ability to run them? Like, were, were the people you were hiring kind of PhD mathematicians? People that were oh yeah, they were yeah. So, yeah. so here's my question, because I think this, this really relates to a lot of non-technical founders, right? Who get involved in a business. Oftentimes, maybe there's some technology involved, or maybe it's a SaaS business, but they feel vulnerable because they don't have the technical chops to know when somebody says that's going to take 10 hours to say, they call them and say, actually, it doesn't take 10 hours to do that because I've done it myself and it only takes two hours. How do you... What did you, how did, what's the question I'm asking? Um, what's the secret or what was your secret for managing people with such deep technical expertise that they could have pulled a wool over your eyes if, if they wanted to, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. 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 Um, I think the lesson that I've learned and I didn't, I didn't practice this early on. Right. So it's a lesson I've learned over the decades is, transparency and vulnerability. Um, You'll have a lot more people following you if you're transparent and vulnerable. And you say, look, I don't know if 10 is enough or not, but I trust you to do your best. And if you can get it done in six, you will. And if it takes 12 to do a good job, you will. And um, vulnerability is a key thing of like, 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 you know, when you're running short on cash, they all know it. (laughs) <laughs> working in your organization. And, and, you know, sometimes people want to like not talk about the elephant in the room. And what I've learned over time is, and is the valuable lesson of transparency. And you talk about the elephant in the room luck we're we're, we're getting short on cash. And so, you know, we're going to do these things in the short run. We don't want anybody to be worried because in the long run, here's the vision and we're doing this, we're doing this. Um, and these are our ideas. And by the way, do you guys have any other ideas? And I, I think that came home to roost a, a lot in Nehemiah because of when COVID hit, and all the things that were going on um, were just a perfect storm. And the thing that I learned from that, and it took me about 30 years, John, right, is vulnerability and transparency are key as a, an executive. Now, you're not going to sit down and break down and cry in front of everybody, right? And like throw your hands up, but you got to admit, uh, look, this is what's happening. I am concerned. We're doing all we can. And, you know, I want you guys to know this. You have families. You can make your decision if you want. We hope you all stay. But if you don't, we understand. It sounds like this, left, by the way. It sounds so, like this actually happened. Can you tell the story of, of 
of what impact COVID had on your company. I'd love to know where you were going into COVID in terms of momentum, size of the company, et cetera. And then what, what happened when COVID hit? Okay. So we were probably the size of your typical customer, uh, 25 people counting the 1099s that do part-time work for you. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different, different departments and stuff for you that maybe 21 FTEs, um, paying a payroll, having benefits. I always believed in having good benefits. Uh, we were doing about a hundred thousand dollars a month and we had already started a sales process. Um, so to sell the company, to sell the company. So, uh, um, the big, the big cybersecurity event is an RSA conference. We kind of used that to launch. We knew we wanted to find a, a, uh, somebody to buy us. Um, and so we were in the process of that. And of course, it stops. Right? Paul, let, me, let me just ask you before we go further into COVID, well, it, it sounds very early, uh, 100K in recurring revenue per month. So uh, you can annualize that. What was it that made you want to sell so early in your life cycle? Um, I think it was a, a perfect storm of a bunch of different things in that um, uh, my family office had other priorities and um, they had told me that if I sold, I had, we had sold a division together the previous year. A division of a division, so a company we acquired, we had sold. Okay. And that company that I sold it to defaulted on the debt. So if they had paid, I would have never sold Nehemiah because they owed me $13 million. Sorry, say that again. Yeah, you lost I, me. So the year before in our financial plan with the family office, they said, look, we got some other priorities in the next little bits. Sell this company, take the proceeds and put it in Nehemiah because we knew Nehemiah was going to be a very valuable asset. And in that process, we made the sale but then that company I sold it to defaulted on the debt. And so therefore, because uh, other parties were going on, I was funding, I was funding it myself. And uh, I'll, I'll, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, here's the story. I'm, I'm probably like a lot of the guys that are li- and ladies that are listening to this message. I'm risk kind of tolerant. I'm married to CPA who's not as risk tolerant. I mean, Myers-Briggs were directly opposite. She's up here, I'm down here, I'm up here, she's down here. And that's what makes a beautiful marriage, right? And hopefully our, our, our children are a mix of both. But the bottom line was when it got up to significant, you know, digits, she's like, honey, come on. You know, you can't fund this forever. And so that was kind of like the perfect storm that pushed us towards there. But also, so- you Go ahead. Yeah, no. So, okay. So the family office, you sell a division, the, the buyer defaults on the loan. So you, what happens in that case? You just don't get your money or you don't, well, you well, get the company you know, back. I mean, I, I, a whole nother show we could do, John is on forbearance agreements and how to collect your money, which is a whole nother education I never had before in all my years of buying, acquiring and selling stuff. Um, you have to set up a plan. And of course, their repayment plan, because it's the middle of COVID, is going to be slowed down dramatically and it's not going to be enough for us to do what we needed to do. But I will tell you this. During COVID, I did a lot of uh, panel discussions. And on one panel discussion, I was with Adam Vincent, who is Threat Connect CEO, and he heard me say we're trying to sell it. And as soon as, because I knew Adam, and as soon as the conference ended, the you know, like, 
like we did a whole bunch of Zoom meetings and conferences and panel discussions. As soon as that conference ended, Adam picked up the phone and called me and said, I'm, I'm looking for a risk product. Would you be interested in selling to us? And uh, that was a blessing that we were on panel together during COVID. And then he called. So, it, I mean, it was a detriment that COVID hit and our sales dropped off significantly. It was a blessing that we were able to get a PPP loan, right? And it was a blessing that, um, that Adam and I were on the call together. And so when that all happened, if, you know, the PPP loan, I think was really, really critical and helping us making it through um, okay. and, and calling me up. Okay. So let me see if I, if I get this straight. So the $13 million that you referenced earlier would have been cash that the family office would have freed up and invested in Nehemiah. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. And, in, and because that didn't come to fruition, or it did, but it, they defaulted, yeah. you were personally financing the burn rate of Nehemiah, you and your right. wife, effectively. Yeah. And your wife is like, time out, buddy. <laughs> this is a big nut. And- you know, because yeah. if I'm doing the math, you got 25 people and 100 grand in recurring revenue. You're probably still burning at that point, right? Like, which is normal for yeah, yeah. stage company. You're burning a little bit more than 100,000 a month. So yeah, you can you can just do the math yourself. Those are big checks to write it. Hey, go, John. Tell your wife tonight you're going to start writing thousand dollar checks for the next six, or seven, eight months. It, it doesn't take long before uh, before a CPA calls. Uh, <laughs> calls a pause on, on things. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So that's all helpful for context. So why, what, one of the other questions I have though, is, you know, some companies went to zero in the early parts of COVID rights, service businesses, restaurants, et cetera. Other companies, Zoom comes to mind, skyrocketed because everybody was remote. I'm surprised in a way that COVID had such a negative effect what was it about COVID that made your business slow down? Because I would have thought more apps, well, cybersecurity would have been a big deal. It was a slow down our sales process, right? Because okay. you're, you're, you're building a SaaS firm. You, you're, those sales have got to come in every quarter. So you make your plans. So you fund more developers because you're doing more sophisticated things. And our recurring revenue base was strong. Our retention was strong, right? People were re-signing up. They loved our software. In fact, it became more relevant because people wanted to know what their overall risk was in the new posture of COVID. But it slowed down that pipeline of, of, um, of you know, Deal flow, of new, like just, sales, new sales coming in. What would a typical sales cycle have? How long would a typical sales cycle have been? Nine months longer for multinational yeah. companies, right? Um, it, it, it's, you know, you could spend two months in the contract process sure, and, and that slowed it down. And so that was one of the other, one of the other considerations. Got it. You mentioned you were at a conference revealing, sharing that you were thinking of selling. Um, was that a calculated risk? Because there is some downside about being so public about the, the, you know, intention to sell. What, what were your thoughts around being kind of fairly public about the, the plans well, to sell? Um, it's maybe a, um, it's not like we had a sign up. Um, we weren't doing anything on the showroom floor. We had a suite in a hotel and we had a few select people in and we were showing them a product and talking about it. And it was very beneficial um, because uh, it's our, our business and every business is one-on-one. -on -one. If you're 
you talk to your other senior people on a one-on-one basis. They get to, get to know you and trust you. Uh, in fact, I, we're going to get to it probably later on, but I think it's the number one key in buying and selling something for me is the relationship with that lady or man on the other side of the table. Um, and uh, can you resolve something quickly? Like, because when you sell or buy, it's going to hit the wall, right? I mean, sure. it's going to be something that always happens, even in the best of situations, a, te- a tenuous situation comes up, then you got to be able to call that other person up. You got to be able to resolve it in five minutes and you got to be able to move on with both of you keeping the long-term perspective. I want to buy that firm. They want to sell it or I'm selling this and they want to buy it. And um, if you don't have that, then the whole thing falls apart because every time you hit one of these little bumps in the road, it's a big, long negotiation and all that. You've got to have that personal relationship on the other side to help it go smoothly, it's at least at our level, right? I mean, sure. it might be different for multi-billion dollars or $100 million firms with thousands of employees, but at our level, you know, 20 plus employees selling it to another guy who might have, or unless I say guy because it was Adam, you know, 100 something out employees, whatever he had, I, have, I don't know what it was. It's still a personal relationship. Sure. So you're at the RSA conference. RSA is at the... Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you're getting your kind of prep stuff ready for that. What did you think it might be worth? Like, did you have a sense in terms of multiple range uh, yeah, that you uh, thought? You know, based upon in the industry, you can, you know, what cybersecurity firms get, um, you know, eight to 10, maybe more if they were bigger. I mean, a $5 million firm gets a much bigger multiple than a $1.2 million firm. A $3 million firm, as you grow in size, you get bigger multiples. Um, and so, you know, you're looking at probably eight to 10 um, at that size. Uh, maybe times more. ARR. Times ARR. Uh, yeah, ARR for folks. Maybe, you know, 10, maybe 10 to 12. It depends upon who your buyer is and if it's strategic or not, or if it's a bolt-on or whatever happens. Um, but there's always a lot of things that play into that. Um uh, play into that equation. Uh, you know, the, the guys and gals that are out that are thinking about this, it's never a binary yes or no. It's 12 or 15 binaries put together of some yeses and some nos. You sit down and you have, in your mind, you're doing what they call a Ben Franklin, you know, the pluses and the minuses. And, sure. and when you put those all together, then you get the, okay, it's ready to go or not. Uh, and then it became that as you sell a company, it's also very fluid, right? Because what you thought was minuses becomes a plus, what you thought was a plus becomes a minus because somebody doesn't like it. And you just so, got to keep it, keep it going. Okay. So we're, so you go to the conference, uh, you're on the panel, Adam calls you up and like, Hey, if you want to sell, you fit hand in glove with what we're doing at Threat Connect. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. What was the next step? I mean, did did he come to you with some sort of letter of intent or indication of interest, well, or did you meet? Or yeah, well, for, you know, first of all, I mean, typically the process is you sign an NDA. We had an NDA. is that what you guys did? Yeah, and we had already knew that we were selling, so we had a data room set up, right? <laughs> so we could give them access to it, and then we could start the process of demoing their key employees and walking down all the things that has to happen. There's there's lots of things that have to happen. And so for the folks that are listening, 
that want to sell something, there's a whole process you got to go through. You got to get all your contracts in one place. You got to get all your employment agreements in one place. You got to make sure as, as best as you can, they're all consistent. You got to know like all your contracts. Did you, um, what, did you have to give up something special for that first big multinational firm you sold? And you got to be able to talk about it. And all this has got to be in a logical sequence where somebody comes in and and, you know, what I always like to say is, is you tell people about something in advance of what they're happening. Right. And so, you know, I would say we have all these contracts. They're all going to be the same. They have this particular clause in it that we like. Um, this one had we had to do something different to get it sold. So this one says this and this is what you're going to want to know about it. And as you know more about your business and they go in there and they look at it and said, oh, Paul did say that in this bigger contract that had this thing in it. Or they, he did say they were all consistent with these particular clauses, and they were. That that gives people reassurance. Back to your transparency. This is a lesson I learned early on, even when I was a sales manager for startups. If everybody in the firm answers the objections the same way, people feel comfortable. Like when they walk in to look at you to, you know, they're going to buy software from you. What's the feel of the organization? And if they go out of the meeting and they go to the the restroom and come back and they run into somebody and they talk to them and they ask about something. And that person answers the same way they're in the room. They get comfortable with you. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's builds this trust because you're just being transparent and honest and everybody knows the answers to the questions. And so what I would always purport if I was advising anybody out there is consistency and transparency are keys. Sounds like it. What was your, communication to your 20 or so employees at this stage, you're, you're under NDA with Threat Connect and Adam. You know, some might say, boy, if, if, if my employees, some of which are very, you know, very expensive data modelers and mathematicians and so forth, hard to recruit, know I'm thinking of selling, they're going to get their LinkedIn profile brushed up and start shopping their resume. Did, did you worry about the fact that they would maybe leave if if not at all, not at all, because you have to connect what you're doing to their, to their future. So how did you do that? Well, first of all, uh, Adam was a perfect fit for us because he was already in threat intelligence. We relied a lot on threat intelligence. He had a uh, workflow program, a SOAR, right? Um, as As a technical name of the marketplace, but basically it's workflow that we were looking at because we wanted to communicate going farther and farther down on the organization. So his organization fit hand in glove with where were we going? And it got us there faster. And, and as I know today, and I don't think any of the employees that went over have left none. Got it. So for um, you, you, you grafted this opportunity for them and so showed them what it could mean for their careers. And for the software, I mean, people start believing in the software and the software's mission. And can the software's mission be furthered by this combination or not? And are you selling to somebody that's going to take care of them in the same cultural ways that you took care of them? And those were yes, yes, because here we are. It was a year Friday. By the way, last Friday, it was a year. Congratulations. Um, and nobody left. And That's amazing. So Threat Connect is the, is the ultimate acquirer. They have, as I understand it, a, 
a sort of full suite of cybersecurity solutions. Oh, gosh, I sound like a. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, like I'm doing a webinar for the company. Yeah, yeah. you're gonna they're gonna call you up for a sales job. <laughs> yeah. So, but but effectively, if I'm a bank or a big CPG company or whatever, and I want to I want to make sure that I don't get hacked and I've got cyber secure, et cetera, I might hire this company and they'd have solutions. And your solution, this threat assessment, this financial assessment piece, fit into that solution. So yeah, it, it was, helped them. Yeah. So they were going to sell your product to their existing customers. Correct. And new customers. And that's and what makes use, it valuable to them. And they would use your product to go as a thin edge in the wedge sort of idea to get into a new customer and then sell around yeah. the other products. Yeah. Cause we were, we were risk management and risk management was, was very popular. It was an emerging category in Gartner. We were a Gartner cool vendor, which is a whole nother story of how, you know, we got that as a young company. But to be clear, I'm just going back to threat for a second, threat connect. Was it, I know both, uh, both of those strategic reasons were probably appealing to them. The idea of selling your product to their customers and then winning new customers through you. Do you, did you get a sense of which was a higher priority for them? I think that whenever, and I, so I don't know what, Adam and his team were thinking about, but I know when I've done this in the past, yeah, it's the one thing is, can I sell it to my existing base? Cause that's the easier sale to make, right. Than a new sale. Yeah. And yeah. so this is, isn't an easy upgrade is always a question you have to ask yourself. So you'd be looking at it. Is it an easy upgrade? First of all, and then, you and know, then, then there's great, you know, now this whole thing, risk management was a burgeoning, burgeoning area. Gartner's tracking it. We're a Gartner cool vendor. Then it, it brings all that other stuff to the sales process because they were doing well by themselves before we were, we were sold. Right? Sounds like it. Yeah. 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 And so you're under NDA, you're going through the demos. At what point did, did you reveal your numbers to Adam and the team? Well, I mean, once again, I mean, when Adam asked me up front, I told him exactly what my sales were, how many people I have. They're going to find about some of the stuff anyways, and it's yeah. almost public information, right? So up front, I disclosed how big we were, what our revenue were. Um, you could ask me what the burn rate was, and I would know it exactly at that day. Um, I kind of you know, waved my hand at it recently because I don't really remember specifically what it was. But it just, you know, you got to give them information to help them make an intelligent decision about what they're doing. And if you play your cards close to your chest, well, you're losing on transparency and trust, right? Did, I mean, there's some things you're not going to divulge. Like until we had NDA, I wasn't going to tell about our secret sauce about how we did, you know, how we actually made all this work because there was challenges along the way we had to, we had a hurdle like computational explosion because these, this thing we're doing was so big. We had to figure out a way not to have the programs bust because they, they were doing too much. Um, there were all kinds of stuff along the way we had to figure out. And that is, you know, trade secrets and, and patent kind of stuff. And you can hold that off to later on because they understand that. Um, and those are really, really important meetings. But the bottom line is on the, on the, what I would call the surface stuff, just be honest. This is our sales and our employees. This is what we're doing. This is, you know, what our pipeline looks like, that kind of stuff. Years ago, I did an interview for the show with a guy named James Murphy, who created a product called Viviscal, which was, um, like hair uh, bald, balding solution for women, for women who had a, the hair loss yeah. effectively. And 
it worked. Unlike a lot of the quack stuff that, that they sold, it actually worked for women because the reason for women's uh, thinning hair, it tends to be uh, for different reasons. Anyway, it worked and it was a Marine protein and it was, it was a, it was a very highly guarded secret because it was very, very proprietary. And he went through the entire sales process. He was pitched, he was selling to uh, consumer packaged goods companies like Procter and Gamble and, yeah. and those folks. And ultimately he sold it to C and D. I think it was $165 million. It was a Good big, big, ex- very spectacular sale. He never shared the marine protein formula until the 165 million dollars had been wired to his bank account. Yeah. So even under NDA, he that little secret wasn't going until the the check cleared. So but 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 in your case some of the the kind of secret sauce you you did feel comfortable sharing with Adam prior to the check clearing your Yeah, account. I think it was a requirement from the but also I will tell you this. Um, a recipe in one person's hands and a recipe in another person's hands don't always turn out the same way. Hmm, right. Very good point. So yeah. That's one way to, that's one way to look at it is that they're also that, um, as the French would say, the je ne sais quoi to it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded by my friend uh, who went through the Cordoba chef school. He says, there's a difference between what does he say? A chef and a cook. Yep. And I'm like, there what's the difference? And, and like, uh, and did he, why not like the, the level of precision effectively is, is, and, and yeah. what the outcome would be. Yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. So at what point does Adam present you with a letter of intent? I, I think it was in a, I mean, I would guess, uh, well, upfront, they, they have an intent to purchase, but when we finally found the number, it was a couple of weeks into the process. You got to get it out there really fast. Cause you don't want to waste a lot of their sure. time or our time. Um, and, so, and did that come with most of these LOIs come with like a no shop clause? So you can't sort of negotiate with yeah, anybody else. I'm assuming you have and, one of those. and we expected that and we were comfortable signing it with that on there in there. Did you, did you consider shopping the company to others uh, at this stage when you had the kind of bite from Adam, did you think, okay, maybe I'll go and get it two or three other. Well, we, we're, we're running a process and there okay. were two or three other bidders at the time. And he's, he was the bid we decided to take. What was it about that bid that put it over the line for you? Uh, well, relationship with Adam, like I already talked about that. It's got to be, yeah. I think it was that the price was fair based upon all the other variables. Right. The timeline was fair. In other words, we're not going to spend months in contracts. Um, and so it aligned in a lot of those, you know, when we said there's 20 or 30 binary things that check the yes in many of those boxes. And, we, and that's why we went for it. And, and I don't know if you can share this, so please just tell me you can't if you can't. But was it in that sort of eight to 10 range? Or? I can't. I can't tell you. Can't that, to that's it. one thing that, that we all, you know, they'll never like publicize out there. And, like, yeah, no, totally. But everybody, it. you know, everything happens in ranges, right? I mean, you know, but I can't confirm or, or what range it finally ended up. Yeah. And was it this? Maybe, maybe you could uh, answer of the other offers that you received, was it the sort of like, was it sort of in the middle, a lot higher, a lot lower, or sort of in the range of whatever, what everybody else was sort of thinking, I guess what I'm getting, I, I, guess, it, to... I guess it was, I would say that it was higher than some, but, um, as I remember, maybe not the highest. Okay. Okay. So not there the were some intangible pieces like the, the, how fast he could close his word, the, the relationship you had. The financing the, of the organization. Did they have no cash on hand or were they looking to go raise it? You know, those, those are, are all things. things you have to think about. Yeah. 
And and what about the terms? Um, I know a lot of these deals that are sort of back end weighted, where you've got a long earnout to deal with. Like, did how, what 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 can you tell us about the terms? Well, um, the terms were very reasonable. Um, uh, um, it was probably the shortest time I was asked to stick around to help advise. <laughs> and um, now that I've done it once. Um, next time I'm going to do the same thing over and over again. I like the short term in and out. Um, but one of the, your audience is going to find out that you, you don't make all the rules anymore once you sell. This has happened to me, as you said, three or four times. And I go to an organization, I don't make the rules. And you're like, I want, we did, maybe we would have done something different. Or whatever. That's not the case anymore. You don't have even the right to say unless they ask you what your opinion is and you can get frustrated, but it's, it's, it's do it and move on. I think it's really good. Well, I think stick every- around long enough that make sure the transition is smooth because whether you're being paid or not, that's your duty to make sure they get the, the value out of what they spent, but move on fast, go on to your next one. Well, I think everybody would love to move on fast, yeah, well- but it's not quite as easy. And most of our listeners uh, would would at least be asked to stay on for some sort of earnout. Average length is three years. Yeah, if there's services, if there's services firm, that's that's going to happen. Software, we're a yep. little bit different, right? Uh, I'm not the main developer. Um, yeah, uh, but even with software, we hear, you know we hear sometimes there's like a a private equity company will come in buy sixty percent and ask the founder or CEO to roll some equity and and can stay on as CEO for. Oh yeah. That's a completely different situation I was talking about where you know, here's a new CEO coming in that knows what he's doing. It's a seasoned professional. We in don't the case of us. Adam. At, at yeah, you don't need two yeah. of us around, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he knew what he was doing. So, so he had you come in when, as an advisor. And again, if I'm getting too nosy, just say can't tell you. But as an advisor, was that a role where you were like on salary, or more like as a consultant, or were you just a well, shareholder? Whatever wanted- your arrangement is, it is. And what you got to do is figure out what the cadence is. And a lot of times, it's hey, this came up today. What do you think? Or what, what, okay. what were you thinking when this happened? Give me the background. So you're not leading a team at this stage. You're not hitting like hitting sales numbers. You're you're not literally on call advisor. to advise. I'm an advisor helping some sales situations because I was a lot involved in the sales situations. Um, that kind of stuff helped, tra- you know, talk to the new sales leadership about, you know, why, why people buy this product and all that. It was purely a ri- advisor role for me. And I've, I've been on you know, longer, as I said, times, this was the shortest one. And I, I think it was the best strategy. How um, long did you stay on as an advisor for? Like how many months or years? I don't know, a very short time. Um, uh, I don't know if I can even talk about that. Okay. doesn't. And let's say less than a quarter. Okay. Okay. I was going to say less than a year. So that's fine. So no, no, less than a quarter. Fairly short. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about, um, tell me about the relationship with the family office. And again, I'm asking out of genuine curiosity. My understanding is that most family offices are are relatively passive investors. They're not like, Paul, how's it going today? Like they're not after you for KPIs every day. They're, they're sort of a little bit more like hands off. What was your experience through? Like, are you, are you keeping them abreast of the various offers that you've got? You know, they trusted me just to say, this is the best offer and here's what we're doing. Okay. 
remember I've been, I've been working with them for a long time since 2005 at the time, 2006. So I was a known entity. They had seen successes from me before I was building on a relationship of trust and transparency. Uh, and you know, the whole, the whole thing is that I would recommend, whether it's a VC, a family office, anybody, just transparency. Here's what's going on. Hey, we got a problem recently. Uh, you know, we put out a release and it didn't work as we thought it was going to work. And we're, we're doing this to fix it. And this is what we're doing so it doesn't happen again. And those are the things that you, you know, don't, don't try to just give them a rosy picture because then when things aren't rosy, they're like, what? You know? Yeah, like but I, I, I would have liked to have known. Help me understand a family office. So, so you, again, we don't have to talk specifically about the one you're involved in, but I, I'd be curious just generally the structure. So you've got, as I understand it, it's usually an entrepreneur who sold a company for a truckload of money, or they've inherited a truckload of money in some capacity, but they've got a big you know, pool of capital. And they often hire a CPA or you know, a, a CFO type of person to run their family office for them. And that person, in addition to other things, places capital. So they'll put some money into into debt instruments, some money into uh, the stock market, and oftentimes they'll put some money into privately held businesses. And when they they do the latter, they are the custodian of that money effectively. And they're they're a CFO and they're they're basically gonna say, okay, I'm gonna take 10% of this portfolio, I'm gonna put it into some more high risk, high return things. So the person running the family office is not the rich entrepreneur, it's the 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 kind of usually professional manager who is a CFO. Have I got that about right? Or um, like- yeah, for most, most fam, uh, most of the family offices that I know, the people who made the money in their siblings are, or, and, or children are involved. They're involved. Yeah, they're involved. I don't have the, you know, I mean, maybe in, in other circumstances, it's a couple of arms like removed, but no, you, in fact, the my the the leader of this family office was probably one of the best people I know in running a software firm. So okay, I know, so- I Jones for times I could get together and and uh, learn right and and um, and absorb the knowledge base. Um, and so that's that's was my case. Maybe a little bit different. Um, but I wanted to, to get input. I wanted to understand what was going on. I think, you know, it's one of the things I've learned too, that I will say to your audience is, um, you know, what made you successful 40 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago, probably is not going to make you successful today. And so you have to pray for transforming your mind that you can get your mind around the new realities and be really truthful with yourself. I mean, the truthful is, oh, what I did there doesn't work, or this person's better at running that than I am. Um, and I think those are like some realities that, especially after we've you know, I've clearly been blessed, I've been successful many times over. And a lot of the lessons I have learned still work for me today, but some don't. Like I told you, like the new paradigm for me is a lot more transparent and a lot more vulnerable. And I think that that aligns more with today's world and where today's world's going. And also the young people that are coming up in today's world, they know it. if you're not, you're hiding something. 
right? What have you, let's take the last, say, 12 months as a lens. What have you changed your mind about in the last 12 months as it relates to entrepreneurship and building businesses? Hmm. I think you got to be ready for anything, right? I mean, clearly the, the COVID was one thing, but also now Delta uh, variant people are, I see, I see small businesses all over making, I call them audibles. They happen every day. Like I love football, right? And so the quarterback gets up at the line of scrimmage. He looks around, looks at the defense. Right? So we look at our competitors. I look at our products. We understand that, okay, today's audible is going to be this, and we're going to run it up the middle. Tomorrow we're going to be running around the end. And but I, that's, that, that hasn't changed in 40 years, has it? Like, yeah, I no, that hasn't changed, but also the – I think that the, the the defense has though, right? The, okay. the environment has the the environment has never been as volatile as it is right now, and so you know, like you know, and how to think differently about it, you know, like um, I sit on the board of uh, an anti-trafficking organization, and they were going to have a completely online dinner this year, and I said, no, things are changed. Let's do a small group of people, and we'll have it on location and then also have everybody join from Zoom. And I'm working I'm working with that with my local church as well to be able to integrate the online and offline environments. Things are changing like that in the new world. Like, hey, we don't expect I mean people just aren't I mean the data shows that people aren't going to church consistently every Sunday. What they'll do now is they'll go two Sundays a month and two Sundays a month they'll attend online because that's the way you know you you have a young family, you know things come up. Sure. And so sure. you have new realities and so you got to get your mind around these new realities. One of the things that COVID has helped with is I listen yesterday I spent an hour listening to uh, a cybersecurity podcast or actually broadcast it was a, a they had four or five famous chief information security officers and they were talking about how they think about different things in cybersecurity. I've been attending those. It's just like that lunch stuff that I was telling you about earlier or those getting out. I think you have more opportunity now than ever to attend some of these free, free things and attend them. And, and, and even if you're doing email, cause you have to multitask cause you don't have time, you pick something up. And, and if you keep on picking things up and keep on transforming your mind and learning and learning, uh, look, I I'm 62 and I think I got a couple, two or three more successes left in me. What was the what was the reaction of the your contact at the family office when you know you you effectively the check cleared the bank? I, I don't know how you want to describe that, but yeah. you, know, you handed the check over to them. I'm sure it wasn't a physical check, but what was their reaction? It's always positive. I mean, you got to celebrate with people. I mean, you mourn with people, you celebrate with people. Um, so, and and, and it's it, it's uh, it's uh, how did you do that? Was there a dinner? Like, I'd like to know seriously. Well, like, um, when when the deal closed, there did was they a, call you or you call them or what happened? Oh, I, I sent an I sent an email because um, there was a health thing going on at the time. Somebody wasn't feeling right, and so I didn't have the chance. But I mean, normally, um, like a month after, we we do something like go fishing or do something to celebrate about yeah. it and strategize for the next one. But in this particular case, there was some health concerns, and so I wasn't able to do it but we have done it three or four times over. So I'll go back to the previous times. It's, yeah. it's always good to celebrate, right? It's always good to say, Hey, this is a job well done. Um, and you know, after a while too, and maybe it's, yeah, after you've done this, after you've been in the end zone a couple more times, it's great, but then you get the desire to get in the end zone again. So you immediately sure. start the next morning thinking about, okay, 
what's going to be the next thing I'm going to do and how am I going to do it and how am I going to get it, get that ball in the end zone again because you get the you you get you get the the emotion the flavor for it the zeal sure super bowl champions have the trophy did did you do you have a physical trophy i'm i'm wondering if you have something physical that okay so uh, is a momentum i have to make a confession to everybody out there so you you asked the right question so during right before covid um lynn and i uh my wife we sold our home and we moved into a two bed um 1800 square foot two bad 19 floors up from five acres and a pool and everything else you can imagine, workout room, theater, all that stuff. Um, and, you know, to me, I used to have all the tombstones. So two stones are uh, like more over technology that I built, uh, tra- helped transfer them with a bunch of really, really great people and sold to LexisNexis. And, you know, Lex- LexisNexis had like 94 people on the deal team. We didn't have maybe 70 in our whole organization. Yeah. Um, I used to have all those tombstones and I got rid of every ball. I, my desk has nothing on it uh, right now, except I hold a lot of that stuff in my heart. Right. And I know it. Um, I don't need something to remind me of it. I can still tell you stories of, of how the memorial deal went down and who was involved. And Tom, the guy from Lexus Nexus, that was a, such a great acquirer for us. Um, I, and I think I've been transforming myself more and I don't keep trinkets around because uh, we love our new lifestyle. It's unburdened. And we, we really, we really like, so, you know, if I buy like a new t-shirt, uh, a t-shirt's got to go out and I don't have any grandchildren yet. And I'm not going to get a house and, and pool and all that until I get grandchildren. So I got a few you, years to wait. <laughs> you're the opposite of the, the trophy story. You're like jettisoning everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's it's more about the people. I, and that's why I write people's names down. So I told you so. I'll like I'm due this afternoon to call a former employee that at the one year mark reached out to me, and he'd always been a, a great person. And he said, "Hey, today I know it's a one year mark. I just want to say thank you. Really happy here at Red Connect, and uh, give me a call next week." So he's on my list to call today. Did your employees at Nehemiah participate financially in the acquisition by Threat Connect? Um, we, I would say, yes, I took care of my employees. I've always took care of my employees, whether they've had a formal plan or not. I take some of the deal proceeds and, uh, not everybody, but key employees that have been there all along. I took care of them. How do you decide, you know, you sound like a very philanthropic person, mission driven 50% is incredible. I think a lot of people listening to this are conflicted when it comes to sharing deal proceeds with their employees, because I think they're mindful that those employees brought them to the dance. They'd never be there without them. Having said that, those employees didn't risk their capital. They weren't the ones that you know, worked all the weekends and, and, and did the things. I mean, you were burning $100,000 a month to the point where your wife was like, hello. So like you were like seriously risking a lot. And I guess a lot of people are conflicted about this, this issue of how much and with whom to share when it comes to the sale of their company. What guidance would you give them trying to figure out what is maybe morally right, if that makes any sense? Well, I mean, every situation is different. The way I look at it is... um, there's a double blessing in it. You're blessed with it and you can bless other people with it. And 
hey, they did spend weekends. I mean, you, I mean, they did a lot of my employees work. When there was a problem, they worked nights and weekends to get it fixed. They were there. Um, they, they stuck by you, right, when you were transparent and said, hey, we're going to be sold. Um, and it's, as I said, I wasn't able to, you know, do all employees. Um, but um, the key ones certainly um, were able to do something for is that a hard conversation with the family office? Because they're the family no, offices at arm's no, length. Uh, not really. Because you know what? I can go to, I mean, uh, if I want I mean, let's say hypothetically, if I didn't have contractual constraint, I could go tomorrow, put a shingle out there and call a lot of those people and they would be back in about 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, and, it, and it's, it's a other stuff, though, John, it's not just the money in the end. It's are you concerned about them personally? I mean, I know their wives, their um, husbands, their children's names. Um, uh, you know, we at, at, we celebrated every birthday. We would get whatever cake you wanted. We would have a once a month. We would if we had three birthdays, we'd have three cakes, <laughs> uh, an ice cream cake, a coconut cream, and something else, whatever. But you yeah, know, I went to work at EMI. I came back ten pounds heavier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Celebrating birthdays. Uh, if somebody died, even if it was a grandmother, we'd send flowers because you're in the person. Biz- I mean, and more than ever, you're in a people business. You cannot get that product out the door. You cannot build software. You cannot provide those services without those people. Um, I'm not saying you know you give everything you got away. But you have to recognize the ones that went, uh, that were there through the thick and thin and went, uh, went over for you. And that's what we choose to do. And, so, I've, done it, and I've done it, um, you know, in other the sales when I've been CEO, where I've been able to control it. I've put something in that's not just the Nehemiah one, it's the one before that. And I've given something back to all the employees. Is 10% a right number? I don't know. It depends. You know what? It, it, that is a decision because you got to look at the at the end of the day. All right. So uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Kenny, what's his name? The, you know, you, no one to pull them, no one to show them. You oh, yeah. yeah. To, uh, Kenny Rogers. Wasn't that? To the end of the day. And so you got to right. get to the end of the day and you, you got to see, OK, here's what I got. Here's what my cost was and what I got left over. And I would say at the end of the day, make that decision because you don't know to the end of the day. Um, and uh, that's what happened with us. Now, I kind of re- projected, I had a spreadsheet where I knew, you know, where I plugged in and I had percentages and all that based on what I thought. So it's not like it was a final guess in the end. I had planned out it all along. What was your favorite reaction that you received from a Nehemiah employee when you told them you'd sold the company? Uh, I will. I will go to some one of my favorite reactions ever at Nehemiah or at Nehemiah because remember it's during COVID, so I'm not seeing them. Right, those other happy. Yeah, it's over Zoom or whatever. Yeah. Um, I remember recognizing a a particular employee of mine uh, was going above and beyond, and we needed to give her a raise, and and a very personable person. And I remember uh, out of the blue, unexpectedly, I walked up and gave her a letter that said, you have a raise. And out of the blue, she gave me a hug. Out of the blue. And it, was, it wasn't like I got hugs every day or anything like that. But I really appreciated that person. And I really appreciated what she did. 
Um, I've got letters that I've, I've kept. There's, there's a couple that I have kept, um, even from starting employees. Just, uh, you know, maybe they were interned with us and they left and they said, you know, thank you for showing me. I and mean, I think that's one other thing that I would encourage all your viewers. Hire, inter- hire interns, pay them $20 an hour because they're working for you and they deserve pay for it. And somebody gave me a hand up when I was in college to get, you know, internships and stuff like that, or jobs to go to college, you know, pay for college and then move on. I encourage you all to do it, but I've gotten some fantastic notes. Uh, I got a text message Christmas day from an employee, uh, another person um, who said, Merry Christmas. And thank you so much. And those are, those are, man, I'll keep them forever because they're, they're just, that's what it's all about, right? It's about people. It's not about you being successful or the company being successful. It's that, did you, did you, all your employees, did you treat them right? And I've got some, uh, some instances where people have affirmed that I have treated them right. And that's what I, that's what I treasure the most. Let's leave it there. Uh, Paul, where, where can people find you if they want to connect and, and, uh, and reach out in any way? Are, are you, do you accept LinkedIn uh, connections? Yeah, LinkedIn's or fine. I, I love LinkedIn. I accept all requests. I get a ton because I'm open. I get a ton of, you know, uh, linked to me. And I always say, I'll, I'll connect you today, but don't try to sell me anything. I'm happy, <laughs> I, I'm happy to mentor people. I mentor for free. Um, you know, you call up and ask my advice, I'll give it to you. Um, um, you know, there are some longer term relationships, uh, but in my, my role, I'm able to help people. And that's what I like to do, um, Fantastic. across the board. And we'll put, uh, your LinkedIn profile in the show notes so that people connect to that. Um, yeah, just and, go I, to and I go there every couple of days and accept them. And, um, awesome. if there's a longer note, sometimes you have to wait a week or two to like, get around to reading the whole note, but the, the short, I saw you want to connect to you, or I have a question and I'll, you know, give somebody an email to send me a calendar invite to something like that. Great stuff. Well, Paul, thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you, John. It's been great talking to you. Appreciate it. God bless you. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, the art of selling your business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. 
Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening. episode please leave us a review on itunes we often come to the office with all of these apps running in our head And you can't just swipe up to close them. Is Alzheimer's going to take grandma? Will the fertility treatments work? When will the divorce be final? These are all aspects of our lives and our identities that we don't just shut off when we get to the office. And it feels like stuff our coworkers should know about us. But we don't know whether sharing is crossing the line between work and personal. And sometimes what you don't share represents something fundamental about your identity who you truly are in your heart and soul. So the question becomes, do you share some of these deeply personal aspects of yourself with your coworkers? Should your colleagues know that your partner is going through cancer treatment and might look different when they see them next? And if so, how do you tell them? This is TED Business. I'm Madupa Akinola. Today, we're going to hear from Micah Ames, who actually works at TED. He's a media communication associate who recently came out as trans. Before coming out at work, Micah thought long and hard about what he wanted to say to his colleagues and how he wanted to deliver that message. As you'll hear, he has a beautiful story to tell about that experience. He also has some excellent advice on good ways to disclose something or to listen when a topic is sensitive. Then after the talk, I'll give some tips on how to create the kind of workplace where employees feel comfortable opening up about who they really are. No matter who they are or what they do, companies want to give their employees all the support they need and deserve. Our sponsor, UKG, has HR and workforce management solutions that can give you the tools you'll need to help make your people, all of your people, feel like they belong. UKG, the cross-category leader in HR solutions. Visit UKG.com to learn more. 30 years ago, Citrix pioneered a radical idea that office work didn't have to be constrained to the office. That with the right technology, people could work from anywhere. The past year has made the idea more pertinent than ever with workspace solutions from Citrix. What it does is enable secure hybrid work with digital workspace technology that helps organizations empower their employees to do their best work from wherever they are. Stay tuned to learn more about Citrix and visit www.citrix.com slash unlock dash potential. That's www.citrix.com slash unlock dash potential. Coming out. Typically, we think of this as being an experience specific to the queer community, but we all have things that we're keeping in our closets. 
It could be something about our home and family life, something about our mental or physical health. Maybe you're not allergic to cats. You just don't like them. I feel you on that one. Whatever it is that you're keeping in your closet, inevitably it shapes the way you navigate the world. And that can include your work life. So how do we go about disclosing these important, but sometimes difficult to talk about aspects of who we are? And when someone comes out to us, what can we best do to listen and support them? Hi, my name's Micah, but it hasn't always been. After a year at my current place of work, I started the process of coming out as trans. When I sat down with human resources to talk about how to reintroduce myself to everybody, neither of us had answers. Nobody at my place of work had come out as trans before, but that's what I'm here to offer you. Three tips on how to talk about things that are hard to talk about. And for those of you on the other side of the conversation, I have some advice for you too on how you can best listen, respond, and be an active ally for your colleague. I can't give you the exact words to say because they should be your own. After all, I don't know what you're keeping in your closet. But whatever it might be, I hope these tips will provide you with a framework that's going to help you decide exactly what you want to say and how you want to say it. Know what you want and don't want out of the conversation. To know this, ask yourself questions like, do I need anything from the person that I'm disclosing this to? Where do I want the conversation to go from here, if anywhere at all? And how do I want this person to understand my own relationship with this aspect of who I am? So in my case, I knew I wanted people to call me by my new name and pronouns, but I also didn't want them to avoid me out of fear of messing them up. This was going to take time. And I wanted this to feel like any other ordinary fact about who I am. So now we know what we want to communicate. Let's talk about how we're going to say it by setting the tone. You're going to want to present the information in the same way you want people to respond to it. They're going to be looking and listening for cues on what the appropriate response is. Is this something that you want to be celebrated? I'm trans. Or do you want to just address it and move on with your life? Oh, by the way, I'm trans. There's no one right way to say it for everybody. What's most important here is what's right for you. Another note, we're not going to be able to control the way in which everybody responds to this. But what we do have control over is how they understand our own relationship with this part of who we are. So now that we know what we want to say and how we want to say it, where do we want the conversation to go from here? Well, my advice is to give an action item. This will help you keep control of the conversation by giving people direction on what they're supposed to do or say next. I knew I wanted this to feel like any other ordinary fact about who I am. So I decided I was going to use my coming out to solve an ordinary problem. And I sent the following email. Hello, all. I need your help. I am in the market for moisturizer to help with my dry skin. I'm also in the process of coming out as trans. I'm changing my name to Micah, and my pronouns are he, him, his. If you have any questions about my change in pronouns or my skincare needs, feel free to send an email to my updated contact information. And I'd also like to note that while my skin is dry, it is not too sensitive. We're all going to mess up my name and my pronouns, myself included. So when this happens, don't panic or cringe. Please be kind to yourself as we stumble through these growing pains together. I'm fortunate and grateful to work in a place where I feel embraced in any form, be it as a transgender man or a person with dry skin, or in this case, both. Now, I'm going to be honest I haven't made many changes to my skincare routine since sending this email, but I will say that I am feeling much more comfortable in my own skin. And that's thanks to my coworkers' responses. I'll read you a few of the emails that I received from them. One wrote, thank you for being you. However much or little you want to talk about dry skin, genders, or bodies, whatever it may be, 
I will always be here for you. Another wrote, you are the best. You are and will always be one of my favorite people at work, even if you do have terribly dry skin. And more people wrote with simple messages of support, like best gender reveal ever, or to say that they'd appreciated that I'd given them permission to mess up. Now, you might be wondering, if I'm the listener in this conversation, what can I best do to support my colleague other than maybe referring them to my dermatologist? Well, for starters, listen with an open heart and an empathetic ear. You're especially going to want to listen here for the specific language the person is using to describe themselves and their experience, because that's the same language you're going to want to use back to them. You might be tempted to ask your coworker some questions about their identity. Before you ask them a question, ask yourself, can I find the answer to this in a search engine? Chances are the answer is yes. And if the answer is no, ask yourself, is this too personal of a question for me to be asking my colleague? One question that is okay to ask, though, is there anything I can do to support you at this time? This is a note for if you're responding in the moment and in person. But if you want to be an active ally, the conversation doesn't end here. It picks up again with your colleagues and human resources on how you can make your workplace more inclusive of this person's identity. Chances are it's not just going to help them, but maybe someone else down the line. Now, in my case, it would be adding pronouns to your email signature and asking your coworkers to do the same in order to help normalize it across the org. It could also be talking to HR about having more trans-inclusive healthcare policies. And my last piece of advice is for both the listener and the leader in the conversation. Remember that they are the same person you've always known them to be. It's the weight of stereotypes and stigmas that often keep our closet doors shut. We're afraid people are now going to see us as this thing instead of seeing this thing as an aspect of who we are, of who we've always been. I know that was the case for me too, but it got easier for me to say, my name's Micah, because of the way I saw it not only accepted, but enthusiastically embraced by all of my coworkers. So whatever it is you're keeping in your closet, I hope these tips empower you to bring your authentic self into your workplace and hopefully feel more comfortable in your own skin. Today's episode was made possible by Citrix. Citrix empowers companies across the world to securely deliver the apps and data people need to do their best work, no matter where they work or which devices they use. Their digital workspace solution provides a single interface where employees can securely access company apps and data and simplifies IT by centralizing all management activities into a central platform. With Citrix, your company can meet the needs of the modern workforce. To learn more about how Citrix is helping employees unlock the potential of their people, visit www.citrix.com slash unlock dash potential. That's www.citrix.com slash unlock dash potential. Micah's experience shows it's possible to be open and honest and for that to be well-received. But I want to point out that in this case, Micah made the first move. He opened the door to a discussion about his identity. And he knew his work environment was pretty accepting, which made it easier for him to do this. But are there ways we as colleagues can take the pressure off? Can we create opportunities that lend themselves to people being able to share openly without feeling like they're taking a big risk? If you're in a leadership position, there are lots of things you can do to help your people feel like there's room to open up. The first step is being vulnerable yourself, showing that there's more to who you are than boss lady. 
For instance, when I was in business school, I remember a professor talking about having a child with special needs and how that impacted many of his life choices, what he said yes to and no to in his career. Later, as a consultant, a mentor shared that he didn't come from means in an environment where many of his colleagues did. Experiences like those made it feel okay to share things about myself that I might not have otherwise. It created space for all of us to be more authentic about our own identities. So just talking about who you are is one way for those around you to feel like they can share too. But a second and complementary step is to create a company culture that encourages employees to share more of themselves if they want to. And this doesn't have to be serious stuff. We've all done icebreakers where we share two truths and a lie, tell about our hobbies like when we welcome new people into our organization. But why wait for newbies? Maybe create these opportunities more regularly. Try starting this month's team meeting by asking everyone to share one thing they're grateful for. Next month, something they're looking forward to. You get the point. This type of reciprocal sharing can build community and create greater empathy, which is obviously good for teams. And the third step, create psychological safety by being supportive and respectful, especially when someone tells you something sensitive or deeply personal. Now, what's psychological safety again? It's a concept developed by Amy Edmondson, which you heard about in her season one talk. She defines psychological safety as a belief that you won't be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. Now, much of the work on psychological safety focuses on team outcomes. For instance, feeling psychologically safe can help a nurse feel comfortable double-checking a doctor's medication order, which, oh, by the way, might save a patient from an accidental overdose. Or feeling psychologically safe can help an engineer admit they made a mistake in the code, resulting in the error being corrected and you getting a product with fewer bugs. But psychological safety also relates to feeling you can share aspects of yourself, too. If you feel like you're in an environment where you can speak up about an error, you might also feel comfortable speaking up about who you are. So what are the three steps to creating a workplace where people feel comfortable opening up about who they really are? One, share bits about yourself. Two, invite others to do the same. And three, when they do, respond to them with support and respect. That way, experiences like Micah's won't be an anomaly, but more of a norm. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Maria Luisa Tucker, researched by Cassie Brabaugh, and fact-checked by Eliza Solomon. Our mixer is Sam Baer, and special thanks to Anna Phelan, Michelle Quint, Corey Hagem, and Colin Helms. I'm Madupa Akinola. Talk to you again next week. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store.
Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.